0: The Bane
1: Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, great deals on ebooks that go bump in the night. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra all right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirod. First of all, let me apologize for the audio on my portion of the podcast today. We are having some technical difficulties here at the soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas, which we hope to have remedied by next installment. Today, we bring you Griffin Barber's conversation with David Carrico about Carrico's new novel, The Blood is the Life. The novel is about what happens when an observant Jewish boy discovers he has been turned into a vampire. But before that, let's take a look at the news. The dead travel quickly for great ebook deals. Other publishers might want to suck the life out of you charging too much for ebooks. But not Bane. We're driving a stake through the heart of high ebook prices. Invite us into your e reader with great deals on Bane ebooks featuring vampires. But act quickly. These deals will evaporate, just like Nosferatu, when the sun comes up on October 1st. And be sure to check out David Carrico's new novel, The Blood is the Life. For this ebook sale, get $1 off The Half Life Chronicles by William Mark Simmons. The Lord Richard Vampire novels by Nigel Bennett and P. N. Elrod, and the short story anthology Fangs for the Mammaries, edited by Esther Friesner. These discounts apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news.
2: Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Bane Free Radio Hour. David Carrico is perhaps best known for his collaborative work with Eric Flint in, on 1636, The Devil's Opera, and The Span of Empire, an entirely new universe. He, like so many, got his first publishing credits with almost 20 years ago for stories written in the 1632 universe and published in the Grantville Gazette. Since then, he's produced more great shorts and novels set in the Ring of Fire universe and his own fictive universes. He's here today to talk with us about his solo creation, "The Blood Is the Life," forthcoming from Bain Books. Hello and welcome, David.
3: Hey, glad to be here.
2: We're really happy to have you. So uh, we like to—I like to ask the hardest question first. And for me, the hardest question is: What is the coolest aspect of "The Blood Is the Life" for you?
3: Well, for me, uh, you know, speaking as the author, it—it's uh, almost the, certainly the fact that behind the facade of this being a vampire story, uh, it's actually also kind of an old school, what they used to call a building's Roman story, a, a coming of age story. But it's not, you know, the modern usage of coming of age, people talk, it, talk about most the uh, you know, angst, functional societies, or both. Uh, but in this case, it's just a case of uh, somebody whose life gets changed irrevocably and then has to deal with the aftermath. And uh, that's that's where this story is is really all about. That, uh, that wasn't my original intent in telling the story, but that's what the story grew into. So, uh, following on to that
2: then, so did you, you, sounds like you might have stumbled on it a little bit by the characters, or uh, did the characters dictate it to you, did you work to it?
3: Kind of, (laughs) sort of. I'm not really an outlining writer, so I don't plan a lot of stuff out in detail ahead of time. Uh, I, I know who the characters are, what the problem is, and I generally know what the ending is going to be. But everything else I discover along the way in in writing the story. And, uh, you know, I didn't really realize, like I said, that I was writing a coming of age story until I was just about done with the first draft. That uh, I had to go back and look something up that I had written previously to to make sure the continuity stayed straight. And I realized as I was reading through the book, it was a coming of age story. So, you know.
2: Cool. So uh, The Blood of the Life deals with vampirism and its interaction with our protagonist's religion. Uh, Was this something you wanted to explore from the start or something that developed as you thought about the character?
3: That was actually my major focus for the story from the moment of initial inspiration. Um, I have to give you a little bit of backstory here. This goes all the way back to late 2009. I had just finished writing a fairly major project and I was sitting around in my office at night trying to brainstorm what my next uh, work was going to be. And like a lot of writers, uh, I've been a, a reader all my life. So my head is stuffed full of all kinds of weird facts and trivia and factoids and things that people think are facts, and so all of, the, all of this was floating to the top as I was going through the brainstorming exercises. And one of the things that happened to float to the top, um, if you know anything about Jewish culture, Jewish society, uh, you know that the kosher laws are a big deal, what they call the kosher laws, the, the laws that govern how meat is to be slaughtered, how food is to be prepared what a lot of people don't realize is that those laws are actually based on a commandment in the bible in leviticus chapter 17 and the commandment paraphrases something like this the blood is the life and it you shall not consume blood for the blood is the life and is sacred to the lord that's basically what it paraphrases to And as soon as that thought registered in my mind, my mind being the weird and sometimes wonderful place that it is, followed it with another thought, wow, that would be a problem for a Jewish vampire. (laughs) And I immediately had this vision of an Orthodox Jewish man having an existential crisis because he wants to obey the law, he, he lives to obey the law, and yet now he's a vampire and he cannot even exist without consuming blood, which puts him in conflict with the law. And that's where the whole story began. It took a while to develop the story. It took a while for me to develop my chops enough to tell the story right, but that's where it all started.
2: Well, and that scene is, is exceptional. Uh, the scene where he reveals what's going on with himself to a, a religious uh, authority figure. Uh, in in hopes that there will be some kind of solution but knowing that there probably isn't any hope uh was really really it touched me uh, i'm not particularly religious or any, by any means but that was a, a really well executed scene uh not to be too much of a spoiler but to to have him try and discover uh you know what he can do if it's possible to live in continue to live his life uh as that uh uh, vampires is fascinating and such a cool concept for the whole arc of the story uh really enjoyed it david i appreciate it that was good um so we we had to cover a little bit about the religion and stuff the which character in the blood of the life kind of surprised you
3: one of the major secondary characters turned out to be a a man named mordecai solomon which uh, obviously with that name, he's Jewish. Um, uh, And remember that I'm a a discovery writer. I don't plot things out well ahead of time. And because of that, I'm also a very linear writer. I start writing on page one and I tell the story sequentially until I reach the end. Well, I had had fairly early on decided that... uh, the mentor figure in the story, I I was going to use a, a an older rabbi named Avram Mandel. And the first scene where Avram meets with with uh, Haim, the protagonist, I brought Mordecai on stage basically to deliver one piece of information. And then I expected him to just kind of step into the background to be a spear carrier for the rest of the book. And he marched. into the scene and took over quite <laughs> a bit uh, for the better I might add uh, Mordecai turns out to be uh, I find a very fascinating character because it turns out he's also a vampire who's about 280 years old so that uh, you know, another semi spoiler sorry but uh, that that was the beginning of him being gradually revealed as more and more of a of a almost a uh, catalytic character in the flow of the story. Uh, and then he he becomes the, the main
2: protagonist of your uh, short story that's up on Bane.com right now, right? The uh, Dark yeah. Angel?
3: Yeah, he uh, he became the, pro- when I when Bane asked me to write a story to put on Bane.com, uh, there was no question in my mind who was going to be the, the protagonist for it. I, I couldn't use the protagonist of the novel because that would kind of that would produce a spoiler effect of its own. So uh, Mordecai stepped forward and became uh, the the central character of this short story.
2: Yeah, well, and it's it's neat too because it's kind of built in uh, to the novel that he's he kind of takes off and handles business on on the regular. Uh, as as part of what the what he's doing, so it, it kind of it was I, I thought it was a real neat dovetail to, to be able to kind of just go from the novel to the short story and then back again. So uh, I really enjoyed that aspect of it too. He also is I think probably my favorite character, uh, although the I did really enjoy the the interplay between uh, the uh, uh, the rabbi. And Mandel and uh, the Chaim, the character. I thought that was really interesting. The, the, the kind of the conversational and the way the, the you know the best religious figures, the best leaders, generally are able to kind of bridge the generational gap uh, far better than anybody else. Uh, so they're able to kind of communicate. And he with kind of effortlessly. Uh, without any kind of uh, it appearing like false or anything like that, he manages to to bridge that gap not only of the generation but also of the uh, of of the realities of their situation. I thought that was really really neatly executed and, and a lot of fun because um, it's one of the things also about you know you you uh, have a couple of characters speak about flexibility of mind that it's necessary to kind of get. Uh, you know, you have to get through things, but is it righteous? Uh, And again, really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, So uh, I, I, again, I I already mentioned, I really liked Mordecai, uh, but I also really liked his history, his backstory, um, and how that informs who the character is at the present day of the events of the novel. Um, Did that history try and kind of make the character sympathetic to you first, or did you tailor that history to make him more sympathetic?
3: That was uh, something that kind of came out of the resonance of the character with me. I, I mean, I, I bonded with Mordecai very early, and uh, just you know, as as we worked through the story, there just came place after place after place where the the life and the experience of this two hundred and eighty year old man could inform both the story and time in his role as protagonist. So uh, that was, uh, again, discovery at work. But uh, yeah, I think my favorite bit was the admission that he had met Helmuth von Moltke, the, the elder, the German military leader of the generation before World War I, and they found him stuffy, snobbish, arrogant, and um verbose that was that was my my favorite little bit involving mordecai in in the whole story but that's uh he he has several observations that he makes along the way that are just you know come out of a lifetime of experience that is you know three times four times longer than most of us will ever ever know and uh that that kind of perspective, I think, really helped shape the story in a in a meaningful way. So, uh,
2: kind of just as an aside on that, so did you uh, did you research Helmuth von Moltke to, to make these kind of uh, or had you read some of his stuff and found him to be that way or?
3: Well, I, I I didn't particularly research him a whole lot, but uh, he was a Prussian general of a of you know, the very essence of a Prussian general, the, you know, to, to paraphrase Gilbert and Sullivan, the very model of a Prussian general. Uh, so he had to have some of those characteristics. And uh, I based some of that on the fact, uh, he is credited with the, rigid, with the stating the original version of a, a phrase you hear in almost every military conversation sooner or later, no plan of battle survives contact with the enemy. Right. Every, you know, just about every military sci-fi writer, military history writer, military fantasy writer, sooner or later they use this. Even politicians use that statement. Well, I was actually researching that when I found out that the original version of it is quite a bit longer and uh, that, that version yeah that version of it was has been molke's original version was quite a bit longer so that gave me the cue that oh he's verbose he's german yeah. he's prussian he's going to be verbose yeah. so that and, and he's a, an aristocrat so yeah. uh, that's, that's where the verbose thing and, uh, you know, the rest of it just kind of came with the territory.
2: Well, neat. Um, so, uh, kind of follow on to that. Which character of The Blood Is The Life would you want to avoid like the plague
3: and why? That's a no brainer. Cord Snake Campbell. The, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, the primary villain of, of the book. Um, He's a white supremacist. Uh, he's a a fascist in the making. Uh, and people like that are anathema to me. I I have no toleration for someone who uh, uh, has that kind of attitude about about people. You know, I. I I can disagree with people about politics. I can disagree with people about religion, about economic theories, and continue to be on you know, conversational terms with them. I can disagree about philosophies. In fact, sometimes that's fun. I can uh, disagree about a lot of things major and minor. I'll even disagree about music. But uh, I can't. Uh, I can't deal with, rationally, I have no sympathy for people who deny the facts of history, for people who refuse or who state that other people have no right to exist. That is, uh, typifies the worst of the human condition. And consequently, uh, that's, that's one of the reasons why Cord was written the way he was written was because it It's the worst of the human condition. Well,
2: he, yeah, he comes across.
3: (laughs) Well, he was, he was challenging to write. Uh, It's a challenge for any author to write a truly evil antagonist. Uh, You know, to present them as more than a two-dimensional cartoon uh, villain. It's, it's hard to do well. And, uh, even though Cord physically was only on stage in one scene, he influenced a major part of the book. Uh, and I think he comes across the way that I wanted him to come across. So, you know, frankly, I think I wrote him well.
2: Yes, I, I, I believe that's true. Uh, I,
3: yeah, you don't like him if you have
2: any of those, uh, those qualities that you just spoke of in, in yourself. You know, I was like, yeah, I don't like this guy. Uh, and again, Without knowing his backstory, he might have had reasons for being a jackass, but he would certainly didn't have reason enough uh, to yeah. be the way he is. So, it, again, uh, really well executed, and uh, we always like to see some some individuals get uh, their comeuppance, uh, and that certainly happens to a couple of individuals in this one uh, in The Blood is the Life. Um, so, uh, yeah, so which character would you want as an ally, since we talked about the one you definitely don't want to be around or associate with?
3: Well, that's also a no-brainer it would be Mordecai I mean it, it it might depend on the nature of what I was facing you know in some situations I might want Rabbi Mendel uh, but generally I'd probably want Mordecai to be backing me backing me up
2: yeah I think that that'd be pretty much true I mean who wouldn't want a a relatively immortal vampire to help him out and He's got all his training and uh, that kind of thing as well. It's <laughs> he uh, and it's all, also one of the neat things about this too is that the mentoring that goes on, not just from the the from Mordecai but also from the rabbi. You you have a, a cool set of relationships there with the of mentoring and kind of talking about uh, you know what how do we go forward with life uh, when uh, our our fate seems sealed. Uh, is pretty impressive uh, the way it's it's executed in the book. I, I you know, and in, and in, uh, having the, the utmost respect for the the uh, experience of uh, wartime uh, uh, Jews and and other quote unquote uh, people that the Nazi regime wanted to get rid of. Uh, just you know, it's. Incredible how much that informs their current outlook, as it would for anybody. And for them to see, you know, these characters to kind of uh, view the universe through those eyes uh, is really excellently uh, an excellent kind of way to look at modern problems, modern issues, the collision of our modern desires with uh, you know how things were. Uh, again, I was fascinated by that uh, aspect of the book. So much appreciated. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of leads naturally also to. I was impressed by the thought you put into the science of vampirism in the world of the blood is the life. Uh, was this the result of uh, like a long term thought on the problem? Sounds like it was uh, kind of ongoing. Um, but the when I say science, it's like there's there's a, a sequence where we we get into the science. But it's kind of at the end of the science, there's this, we don't really know. And that could be the, the supernatural aspect of it. We, we don't really know as the reader, we're still left like, well, hey, but these are the scientific and quantifiable results of whatever happened, which I think is, is cool because it's almost a, an allegory for the creation of the universe. <laughs> we don't really know it, but it did happen. And we're trying to figure out how it happened. So uh, is that kind of what one of the things you were looking at was like the the long-term thoughts on what that would be like or
3: um kind of sort of maybe okay you know the true confession time i'm not really a fan of vampire stories in general (laughs) which is probably going to make a lot of people go huh (laughs) but i i don't I, i i never cared uh for the dracula gothic horror type of vampire story. I, I don't have a lot of affection for paranormal romance vampire stories, although I will, I will admit that I have Robin McKinley's book, Sunshine, on my shelves. So I'll make an exception for that one. And I really don't care for the glittery, sparkly vampire stories. That just, you know, no good for me. So I was kind of surprised when the muse dropped that, that idea in my head. And uh, I learned a long time ago that when the muse tells you to write the story, you write stories. So I decided I I agreed to write the story with myself, of course. And then I had to decide what kind of story is it going to be. And I went through a process that I, since I don't like those other kinds of stories, I wasn't going to write those kinds of stories. So I had to figure out what kind of story am I going to tell? And I decided that I wanted to tell a, 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 story in which vampirism could be plausible. And that was actually influenced the, the the one series of vampire stories that I do like was written by Barbara Hambly. Uh, I think she did about six books and the first book was called Those Who Hunt the Night*. I found her cast her characters relatable. I could connect with them. And there was a plausibility about their situations and their stories. And that I think influenced me when I sat down to start writing this story. So plausibility, I sat down, I went through an exercise. I thought up all of the typical tropes and memes of vampire stories and I divided them into two categories. They're either mythic or plausible. And the ones that are mythic are not characteristics of vampires in my stories. The ones that are plausible are characteristics of the vampires in my stories. Now, the mythic characterizations get discussed from time to time. And, and there's a couple of scenes where the, the characters actually go through that same exercise that I just described. But the plausibility to me, I, when I sat down and figured out what things were plausible, then I started trying to figure out How would they work? You know, is, is a physiological reason why this would be possible or could be functional? And everything that I worked out, I then was lucky enough to uh, get a hold of Dr. Rob Hampson, who is, uh, in addition to be a, being a science fiction writer, he's having right and a good one, uh, Dr. Rob is also a world-renowned physiologist and neurospecialist, and he agreed to read my science, and he did. and. Some of the stuff I got right, some of the stuff he corrected a little bit, a couple of things he said were just wrong, (laughs) and I had to make big changes there. Well, not bad for a layman, right? (laughs) Yeah. Then he suggested a couple of things that I hadn't thought of. So my science has been vetted and approved by a world-famous physiologist and, and neurospecialist so I'm fairly comfortable that my science is good. No thanks to me. Totally thanks to, to Dr. Rob. And if I got anything wrong, it's my fault, not his. But yeah, that that was that was an exercise that uh, I went through consciously to determine the the physiological reasons why vampirism could could function.
2: Yeah. I, I just, the, just the one singular thing that I went with was like, yeah. Oh, wow. That, that's something I haven't seen tackle before was the adrenaline. You know, rewind the biochemistry to make you more aggressive because you gotta be, you're a hunter, you're a predator. And, and yeah. that, that aspect, I was like, Ooh, that's cool. Cause that was something I, I hadn't really ever thought about, but you know, the, the, oftentimes there's mention of, you know, the hunger, the hunger, the you know, but no, how do you effectively, and you know, uh, increase your chances of using that whatever hunger you've got or uh, would d- desire you have? Well, you have to enhance it with, you know, by different means, and then for survivalness or for survival, of course, adrenaline is also very useful for that as well. So, yeah, yeah and, and the diet, all the things. I was just like, wow, this is cool because you gave a lot of thought to stuff, and again, it, it, the proof is in the pudding that the uh, the being able to uh, point to you know well this would actually be what would happen is, is certainly useful yeah. it didn't that was one of the neat things for me because like you i tend to get thrown out of the story by something that's just kind of blatantly you know inexplicable inexplicable uh not because it, modern science couldn't figure it out but because it just seems impossible so yeah. that was very cool
3: yeah and there's a uh I even go to the extent of making a very small poop joke in the middle of the story. So there's a, there's a vampire poop joke in the in the story somewhere.
2: Yeah. Well, it, that was one thing I didn't actually uh, uh, mention as well, though. I'll tell you cool. what. You you still have the the uh, the there's some mystery still involved. It's not like science answers all the questions. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the the uh, the bars that they uh, that they're able to eat. Uh, I thought that was really a, a cool little sub-mystery going on in there that I wanted to hear more about um, that I hope your readers will pick up on, too, and they'll probably be pestering you for uh, answers to that question.
3: Uh oh, but by, by the books, so Tony will ask me to write a sequel. Yep, absolutely. And so I, I didn't close off every loose end. I left some loose ends because I told the story I wanted to tell, right. but I didn't tell all the stories that could be told. So there's, there's room for continuation. And it's, it's,
2: I I look, I look forward to any continuation. I was, that's why I was eager to check out the short story as well. Uh, and, uh, kind of get that, uh, going in there because that tells a different, uh, kind of story, uh, from a different perspective, although it kind of bookends things, uh, with what would happen if you weren't taught how to do it. And you weren't concerned with the ultimate fate of your, uh, Uh, eternal uh, aspect so really again i enjoyed it so uh the events of the blood of the life is uh take place in widely varied locations from the u.s to israel Uh, i had the impression you spent uh some time walking some of the streets that form the setting uh have you actually spent time in tel aviv
3: no uh i wish i could uh that's actually one of the things on my bucket list is to take a trip to israel but uh No, this is a case of Google Maps is is the author's (laughs) friend. Yeah.
2: So, uh, and uh, New York, spent much time there at all?
3: I was there as a child when we were transiting. My dad was in the Air Force, and we were transiting back from Germany. Uh, We went through New York and ended up in New Mexico. But, uh, no, I have no no adult memories of New York at all. Again, uh, where necessary, Google Maps. Uh, in California, Santa Carla is actually modeled on model, model, Monterey. Uh, but uh, again, I've been to California. I've been to several cities in California. I've been close to Monterey, but I've never actually been there. So again, Google Maps.
2: Well, cool, because I, I didn't get that. So that's, uh, I live in California. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I should, should have picked up on that, but I didn't. Um, so Uh, So penultimate question here. What aside from its raw entertainment value do you hope readers will carry with them long after reading your novel, The Blood is the Life?
3: That's not an easy question to answer, actually. no allegory to the story. the story. What you see in the story is, is what there is to it. But there are multiple layers of themes and there's, uh, although there's not an underlying message per se, it's really a story just written to be a good story. Uh, I guess I can say that the one thing I would want people to walk away thinking about is an awareness of both justice and mercy and the need of both in today's society, uh, you know, our, our current times, people are very harsh and very judgmental with each other, both face to face and even worse on the internet. And yeah, you know, it's—I don't know that I can pronounce the word, the Russian word, right, but nekloturny. Uh, It's—it's a—it's uh, an aspect that's just uncivilized we're we're supposed to be educated cultured people we're supposed to be civilized people we should we should live accordingly and in its own way i think this book points toward that
2: Well, and yeah so even a monster acts by a code right yeah In in this story he does
3: yeah
2: so uh all right, well, that's, that's a great answer too, because I, I try to get that in there to kind of make people stumble a little bit. I think you answered quite well. Uh, what conventions uh, can your fans hope to catch up with you? And what other work do you have in the pipeline for your fans?
3: Okay. Um, this year I've already attended LibertyCon in Chattanooga, SoonerCon in Norman, Oklahoma. And there's a new convention in Tulsa, Oklahoma called TOLCON. This was their second year I went to that. Uh, I plan to attend those again next year. Uh, In about three weeks, I'll be going to Dallas and going to FinCon, uh, which I plan to also make part of my my regular circuit now that uh, we're more or less back to normal movement patterns. Um, My current work in progress, uh, my newest book, is a... uh, My final collaboration with Eric Flint. Uh, We signed a contract with Bain some time ago to produce a new space opera in a universe that has not been uh, published before. Uh, The working title is Hydra. Uh, I'm working on the first draft now. I am devastated that Eric will not be able to uh, do the polishing in the final draft for it but uh, I have his outline. I have lots of notes from when we talked about it and uh, I, um, I have Tony's uh, approval to continue forward with it. So that's, that's, that's possible to get it out there, Red. Um In completion of our task and as a, a necessary bit of homage to Eric and to produce a story that I hope people will like. Um, I think that's it. Okay. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you very much, David. I appreciate you taking the time from your uh, schedule to uh, talk with us today about The Blood is the Life. This has been the Bain Free Radio Hour with Griffin Barber and David Carico. Please go out and buy The Blood is the Life.
1: And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the trough forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant
0: to be a cobra. The nearest building to the Volker plant was an abandoned warehouse a 100 meters due north of the plant's main entrance. Crouched on the roof there... Callie Halloran ground his teeth viciously together as he tried to watch all directions at once. A trap, Johnny had said, with sleep or death already near to claiming him. But was it a simple booby trap or something more elaborate? If the latter, then Deutsch too would probably never make it off the plant's grounds alive. If the operation was wide enough, even this backstop position could become a death trap. For the moment the fact of Johnny's death hardly touched his thoughts. Later, perhaps, there would be time to mourn, but for now Halloran's duty lay solely with the living. Easing his leg forward, he made sure the anti-armor laser within it could sweep the area freely and waited. With his light amplification on at full power, the night around him seemed no darker than a heavily overcast afternoon. But even so, he didn't spot Deutsch until the other was well on his way back from the patch of deep shadow where he'd been waiting for his part of the gate attack. The guards, it seemed, saw him at about the same time, and for an instant that part of the landscape dimmed as laser flashes cut in his enhancer's overload protection. Answering fire came immediately, Deutsch's anti-armor laser firing backwards as he ran. With the unconscious ease of long experience, Halloran raised his own aim to the plant's roof and windows, areas Deutsch's self-covering fire would have trouble hitting. The precaution proved unnecessary. Even with ankle-breaking zigzags tangling his path, Deutsch took the intervening distance like a ground-hug missile, and in bare seconds he was around the corner of Halloran's warehouse and out of enemy view. But it was clear the troughs weren't going to be content with simply driving the cobras away. Even as Halloran slipped across the roof and down the far side, the Volker plant was starting to come alive. Deutsch was waiting for him on the ground, his face tense in the faint light. "'You okay?' Halloran whispered. "'Yeah.' You'd better get going. They'll be swarming around like ants in a minute. Change that you to we and you've got a deal. Come on. He gripped Deutsch's arm and turned to go. The other shook off his hand. No, I'm staying here to... to make sure. Halloran turned back, studying his partner with new and wary eyes. If Deutsch was unraveling... He's dead, Imel, he explained, as if to a small child. You heard him going under... His self-destruct hasn't gone off, Deutsch interrupted him harshly. Even out here we should have heard it or felt the vibrations. And if he's alive— He left the sentence unfinished, but Halloran understood. The troughs were already known to have live-dissected at least one captured cobra. Johnny deserved better than that if it was within their power to grant. All right, he sighed, suppressing a shiver. But don't take chances— Giving Johnny a clean death isn't worth losing your own life over. I know, don't worry. I'm not going to do anything stupid. Deutsch paused for an instant, listening. You'd better get moving. Right. I'll do what I can to draw them away. Now don't you take chances. Deutsch slapped Halloran's arm and jumped, catching the edge of the warehouse roof and disappearing over the top. Clicking all audio and visual enhancers to full power, Halloran turned and began to run, keeping to the shadows as much as possible. The time to mourn was still in the distant future. The first sensation that emerged as the black fog faded was a strange burning in his cheeks. Gradually the feeling strengthened and was joined by the awareness of something solid against his back and legs. Thirst showed up next, followed immediately by pressure on his forearms and shins the sound of whispering air, the awareness that there was soft light beyond his closed eyelids, the knowledge that he was lying horizontally. Only then did Johnny's mind come awake enough to notice that he was still alive. Cautiously he opened his eyes. A meter above him was a featureless white steel ceiling. Tracing along it, he found it ended in four white steel walls no more than five meters apart. Hidden lights gave a hospital glow to the room. By it he saw that the only visible exit was a steel door in a heavily reinforced frame. In one corner a spigot water, protruded from the wall over a ten-centimeter drainage grill that could probably serve as a toilet if absolutely necessary. His equipment pack and armament belt were gone, but his captors had left him his clothes. As a death cell it seemed fairly cheerful. As a surgery prep room, it was woefully deficient. Raising his head, he studied the plates pinning his arms and legs to the table. Not shackles, he decided, more likely a complex set of biomedical sensors with drug injection capabilities, which meant the troughs ought to know by now that he was awake, from which it followed immediately that they'd allowed him to wake up. He was aware, down deep, that not all the fog had yet cleared away. But even so, it seemed an incredibly stupid move on their part. His first impulse was to free himself from the table in a single servo-powered lunge, turn his anti-armor laser on the door hinges and get the hell out of there. But the sheer irrationality of the whole situation made him pause. What did the Troths think they were doing anyway? Whatever it was, it was most likely in violation of orders. The underground had intercepted a set of general orders some months ago one of which was that any captured cobras were to be immediately killed or kept sedated for live dissection. Johnny's stomach crawled at the latter thought, but he again resisted the urge to get out before the troughed on monitor duty belatedly noticed his readings. The enemy simply didn't make mistakes that blatantly careless. Whatever was happening, contrary to orders or not, it was being done on purpose.' So what could anyone want with a living, fully conscious Cobra? Interrogation was out. Physical torture above a certain level would trigger a power supply self-destruct. So would the use of certain drugs. Hold him for ransom or trade? Ridiculous. Trots didn't seem to think along those lines. And even if they'd learned humans did, it wouldn't work. They would need Johnny's cooperation to prove to his friends he was still alive and he'd blow his self-destruct himself rather than give them that lever. Let him escape and follow him back to his underground contacts? Equally ridiculous. There were dozens of secure monofilament-line phones set up around the city from which he could check in with Borg Weissmann without ever going near an underground member. The Trofts had tried that unsuccessfully with other captured rebels. Trying to follow an evasion-trained cobra would be an exercise in futility. No... Giving him even half a chance to escape would gain them nothing but a path of destruction through their building. A path of destruction. A path of Cobra destruction. Heart beating faster, Johnny turned his attention back to the walls and ceiling. This time, because he was looking for them, he spotted the places where cameras and other sensors could be located. There appeared to be a lot of them. Carefully, he laid his head back on the table, feeling cold all over. So that's what this was all about—an attempt to get lab-quality information on Cobra equipment and weaponry in actual use. Which meant that whatever lay outside that steel door, odds were he'd have an even chance of getting through it alive. For a long moment temptation tugged at him. If he could escape, surely it would be worth letting the Trofts have their data. Most of what they would get must already be known and even watching his battle reflexes in action would be of only limited use to them. Only a handful of the most intricate patterns were rigidly programmed. The rest had been kept general enough to cover highly varying situations. The Trofts might afterwards be able to predict another cobra's escape path from this same cell, but that was about it. But the whole debate was ultimately nothing more than a mental exercise, because Johnny knew full well the proposed trade-off was illusory. Somewhere along the trough's gauntlet, somewhere near the end, there would be an attack that would kill him. There's no such thing as a foolproof death trap, C-3-by had emphasized that point back on Asgard, hammered at it until Johnny had come to believe it, but it was always assumed that the victim had at least some idea of what he was up against. Johnny had no idea how the killing attack would come, had no feeling for the layout of this building had no idea even where on Adirondack he was. His duty was therefore unfortunately clear. Closing his eyes, he focused his attention on the neural alarm that would signal an attempt to put him back to sleep. If and when that happened, he would be forced to break his bonds, trading minimal information for consciousness. Until then, he would simply have to wait. And hope, irrational though that might be, They sat and listened, and when Deutsch finished he could tell they were unconvinced. Ama Nunki put it into words first. "'Too big a risk,' she said with a slow shake of her head. "'For so small a chance of success.' There was a general shifting in chairs by the other underground and Cobra leaders, but no immediate votes of agreement. That meant there was still a chance. "'Look,' Deutsch said, striving to keep his voice reasonable. "'I know it sounds crazy.' but I tell you, it was Johnny I saw being taken aboard that aircraft, and it did head south. You know as well as I do that there's no reason for them to have taken him anywhere but their hospital if they just wanted to dissect him. They must have something else in mind, something that requires he be kept alive. And if he's alive, he can be rescued. But he's got to be found first, Jakob Dane explained patiently. Your estimate of where the aircraft landed notwithstanding— The assumption that figuratively beating the bushes will turn up some sign of him is at best a hopeful fiction. Why, Deutsch countered, any place the troughs would be likely to stash him would have to be reasonably big, reasonably attack-resistant, and reasonably unoccupied. All right, all right, I know that part of the city has a lot of buildings like that, but we've got it narrowed down. And what if we do find the place? Kenneth MacDonald, a cobra from Cranach's east sector, spoke up. Throw all our forces against it in a raid that could easily end in disaster. All they have to do if they lose is kill Moro and let his self-destruct take out the whole building, rescuers and all. In fact, that could very well be what they want us to do,' Amma said. "'If they wanted to set up a giant death trap, they would have left him right there in the Volker plant, where we wouldn't have had to work to track him down,' Deutsch argued, fighting hard against the feeling that the battle was slipping through his fingers." He glanced fiercely at Halloran, but the other remained silent. Didn't he care that Johnny could be saved if they'd just make the effort? "'I have to agree with Kennet, Pazar Oberton, an underground leader from MacDonald's sector, said. "'We've never asked you to rescue one of our people, and I don't think we should all go rushing south trying to rescue one of yours. This isn't a corporation ledger we're running here. It's a war,' Deutsch snapped. "'And in case you've forgotten—' "'We Cobras are the best chance you've got of winning that war "'and getting these damned invaders off your planet.' "'Off our planet?' Dane murmured. "'Have you officially emigrated, then?' "'Dane would never know how close he came to dying in that instant. "'Deutsche's teeth clamped tightly together "'as endless months of heartbreak and frustration "'threatened to burst out in one massive explosion of laser fire "'that would have cut the insensitive fool in half. "'None of them understood.' None of them even tried to understand how it felt to watch his own countrymen's failures and stupidities cause the deaths of men he'd come to consider his brothers. How it felt to be defending people who didn't often seem willing to put forth the same effort to free their world. How it felt to share their blame, because ultimately he too was one of them. Slowly the haze cleared, and he saw the fists clenched before him on the table. Bog he said, looking at Weissmann. You lead this rabble. What do you say? An uncomfortable rustle went around the table, but Weissmann's gaze held Deutsch's steadily. I know you feel especially responsible since you were the one who suggested the Volker plant in the first place, he said quietly, but you are talking very poor odds. Warfare is a history of poor odds, Deutsch countered. He sent his gaze around the room. I don't have to ask your permission, you know. I could order you to help me rescue Johnny. Halloran stirred. Imel, we technically have no authority to— I'm not talking technicalities, Deutsch interrupted, his voice quiet but with an edge to it. I'm talking the realities of power. For a long moment the room was deathly still. Are you threatening us? Weissmann asked at last. Deutsch opened his mouth, the words Damn Right I Am on his lips. But before he could speak— A long forgotten scene floated up from his memory. Roland Viljo's face as Commander Mendro ordered him removed from the team and the Cobras, and Deutsch's own verdict on Viljo's crime. Misuse of our equipment would pit us against the civilian population of Adirondack. No, he told Weissman, the word taking incredible strength of will to say. No, of course not. I just. Never mind. He sent one last glance around the room and then stood up. You can all do as you damn well please. I'm going to go and find Johnny. The room was still silent as he crossed to the door and left. Briefly, as he started down the stairs, he wondered what they would make of his outburst. But it didn't matter very much. And in a short time, most likely, it wouldn't matter at all. Stepping outside into the night, senses alert for trough patrols, he headed south.
1: That was another installment
0: in Timothy Zahn's Cobra.
1: And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Kariko for sitting down with us today and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afshirirad coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.